Welcome to today's episode, which will likely deal with some dark topics and sometimes sweary words, so listener discretion is always advised. For ad-free and bonus episodes, click in the link in the show notes for exclusive content. You can support the show at buymeacoffee.com or by giving me a rate, writing a review, or subscribing to future episodes. And with all my marketing blah 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 out of the way, on with the show. Hello and welcome to A Million Other Choices. I am your host, Kim. I have a mystery for you today, which don't get too excited, we're likely not going to solve it today. But sometimes cases like this are interesting to hear about, especially the theories. And it's actually the only case that I know of in Canada that's like this. It's a real head scratcher. And by the end of it, you'll see why I personally don't do very many of these cold cases. This is the disappearance of the Jack family. Yes, an entire family goes missing. Ronnie Jack, who's the patriarch of the family, was 26 and a residential school survivor from Burns Lake, BC, which is a tiny town of about a thousand people. He was born on March 29, 1969 to his mum Mabel, with whom he remained close even after the release from the residential school system. Ronnie and his family were members of the Chislata Carrier Nation, and the people of Chislata lived along the banks of the Chislata and Murray Lakes, and their villages were connected with trails and paths until 1952, when the BC government sold rights of all the water in the Cheslata territory to the Aluminum Company of Canada to begin a hydroelectric project creating the Nicheco Dam, which cut off water to the upper Nicheco River, forcing many of the Cheslata people out. Most members now live on a few small reserves that are scattered throughout the area, and I probably said most of those names wrong, which I will fully admit, so don't come at me about it. Members of Ronnie's family, including his cousin Marge, described him as a very hard worker who prided himself on being self-sufficient. Most of the work that he did was in the logging and lumber industry doing manual labor. The fact that we don't know very much about Ronnie is actually something interesting that I think affects the theories around this case, and a lot of presumption is made without much fact. A lot more is known about Ronnie's wife, Doreen, and her life prior to her disappearance. Doreen had been a childhood friend of Ronnie's who was born um, only about a month after him on April 24, 1963, also in the Burns Lake area. But unlike Ronnie, who was able to maintain a, a close and functional relationship with most of his family after getting out of the residential school system, Doreen's was more complicated and plagued by trauma. Doreen had four sisters, Maureen, Laureen, Jocelyn, and Charlize. The girl's mom had left the family, when, and so they were raised by their verbally, sexually, and physically abusive father. But the sisters were very close, and they managed to enjoy some happy times, going to the local rodeo and doing some street racing, which I don't recommend, but it did make them happy. As children, they were later sent to the Fraser Lake Residential School, where they were abused, of course, by nuns and kept separated from each other. As most residential school survivors, they were not allowed to speak their own language and forced to communicate in English. The school was closed down in 1976. 
Just a side note here, most of the history that I was able to track down was only the history of Maureen and Doreen. I'm not sure what happened to the other two sisters, and the only reason I really know anything about their past is because Maureen has been an outspoken advocate for her sister and has been interviewed a number of times. The interviews and pieces of them have been shared around, so it's really difficult to give credit to the specific journalist who actually did the interviewing. However, I did find segments of an interview with Eve Lazarus of Cold Case Canada that were actually quite recent. And Maureen tells Eve that they were sent to live in two separate group homes after the Fraser Lake school closed. Doreen was sent to Prince George, and when she was 17, she was raped by another student and got pregnant. Being that she was Indigenous and living in a very racist town, Maureen says that she never made a police report, but did try to call out the boy. Uh, now, according to Maureen, he wasn't having, like, he was having none of it. Denied it. And Maureen says that there was a physical altercation between one of his sisters and her. Now, the sisters briefly returned to their father's home in Burns Lake because their dad had, he had since stopped drinking. And Doreen gave birth to Russell Fabian on February 28th, 1980. Their father died of cancer shortly after that, and so then they hitchhiked to Quinell to try and find their birth mum. But birth mum didn't want anything to do with them, sadly, so Maureen decided to stay in Vancouver, and Doreen went back to Prince George. Maureen herself struggled for a few years on Vancouver's east side with drugs and alcohol, but has since been sober for many years, and she testified at the Missing Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls Inquiry, telling her story and the story of her sister and brother-in-law. Doreen reconnected with Ronnie and they sparked a romantic relationship. They never actually legally married, but she and Russell took her surname and little Ryan Paul was born to the couple on July 26, 1985. The family moved into a small rented duplex on 2116 Strathcona Drive. Ronnie worked at the sawmill and Doreen stayed home with her two boys. Described by friends and people in the town as a hardworking couple but struggling recently to find work. Ronnie had suffered a back injury at the sawmill and they had been relying on social assistance to feed and house their boys, but they really desperately wanted to be self-sufficient. Doreen loved her two boys and tried really hard to give them the childhood that she hadn't been able to enjoy, but the relationship wasn't perfect and it had been plagued at times, particularly recently with some fighting between the couple. On the evening of Tuesday, August 1st, 1989, Ronnie headed to the First Leader Pub for a pint or two on the same Strathcona Avenue where they lived, located at 1744 Strathcona Avenue, so about a four-block walk. Strathcona Avenue in Prince George actually intersects with the Highway 16, which is otherwise known as the Highway of Tears, which is a notorious stretch of highway spanning 725 kilometers between Prince George and Prince Rupert, B.C. Now, the Highway 16, which is the Trans-Canada Highway, actually stretches across the entire width of Canada, so it's a huge, huge highway. But the Highway of Tears is just this one particular section of it. It's notorious because of the vast number of murders and disappearances that have happened along that stretch since 1970. The term Highway of Tears wasn't actually coined until 1998, and most of the women and girls listed it as victims, are Indigenous. They are believed to be a number of factors that have contributed to why this particular stretch of highway. The answers to why many, so many Indigenous women, that's due to colonialization and systemic racism. But the highway itself is believed to be contributed to by 
higher than average rates of poverty in the surrounding areas that leads travelers to hitchhike as a way of getting around. And the area is also pretty isolated and remote with lots of carnivores in the area that scavenge on bones, carting away any human remains, making them really hard to locate, which creates a perfect dumping ground for serial killers. The First Leader Pub, which I believe is now closed, but later called the First Leader Party Shack, wasn't exactly known as a high-class pub, but it was very close to the Jack's house, so very convenient since they didn't have a vehicle. While researching its location, I came across this gem of a review from 2013 from a user under the name Prince Gastronome. Quote, This was the first time where I experienced genuine panic. I arrived at the party shack located in a quaint little building in a region of town in which dilapidated would be considered high praise. Like calling New Orleans post-Katrina a little rundown. The party shack is, is not the most pleasant-looking pub in the world, with torn and tattered chairs over a rug which has seen more grease than the air filter in Arnold's Diner from Happy Days. When I approached the weather door, I was greeted by a pack of smokers looking like extras from Waterworld. This was not a pub, this was a pub's fevered night terror. The only way this place could be sanitized was with ten gallons of turpentine and a blowtorch. And then there was the smell, not unlike a bathroom. Not mine, mind you, but the bathroom of a public park miles away from any town. Close your eyes and remember the smell of the worst public bathroom not condemned for plumbing infractions, the ones where the janitor shows up three times a season. The server promised homemade burgers, which would have been fantastic if they had bread. They must have been unprepared for me not ordering wings because I found my burger wedged between two pieces of garlic toast, which might sound awesome, but quickly turned into a grotesquely messy experience. Thankfully, I also had the requisite 30 pounds of fries. Did I like the party shack? Will I return? Obviously no to both, but that's not the point. The point is that it wasn't disappointing. There was no expectation of quality. The fact that I returned to a still intact car with a full stomach with no desire to drive to the hospital for a stomach pump could be considered high praise. Anyways, Ronnie wasn't there that night for a four-course meal. He was just there for a pint and to wallow in his misery of facing poverty and not being able to support his family like, in his opinion, a man should be able to. Now, this is really important to note. Witnesses saw, but did not hear, the following. At some point, Ronnie is approached by a very tall man of about six foot five with reddish-brown hair and a full beard and mustache. He wore his hair parted in the middle and it fell just below his ears. He was about 35 to 40 years old. However, I personally think beards make a man look older, so he could have been really any age from, say, 24 up to 40, and somewhere between 200 and 275 pounds. Big, but not overweight, especially for his height. He was wearing a baseball cap, a red checkered work shirt, faded jeans, and a nylon blue jacket that came to his waist. Also, work boots with leather fringes over the toes. Two witnesses gave the same description and two drawings were done, both looking very similar. The man was not known to be a regular. So those are the facts that are from actual witnesses. Now, according to every report that I have read, this next part is also taken as fact, but we have no way of actually knowing if it's true. All of the reports say that the man approached Ronnie and they started talking and the bearded man offered him and Doreen jobs at a logging camp near Chukult's Lake, which was just past the Bednesti area, about 40 kilometers west of Prince George. There was a daycare available at the site, 
Since the Jacks didn't own a car, the man offered to drive the family out there that very night. Ronnie would buck logs, which is the process of taking a large cut tree and then cutting it down into smaller logs, and Doreen would be a cook's helper. And the only reason we know this part, and that it has been determined to be fact, is that Ronnie called his brother at 11.16pm and told him about the job. Just after 1am, he called his mum Mabel and told her that he would be at the camp for about 10 to 14 days and they would be home in time for the boys to start school in the fall. According to Eve Lazaro's reporting for Cold Case Canada on this call, Ronnie told Mabel, if I don't come back, come look for me. But that is the only reporting of that that I found. Not that I doubt it, I think it could very well be true, because Eve was the one of the only people that had recent access to surviving family members and the current investigating officer to talk to, but it's very interesting that this is not more widely reported on. A witness saw the family get into a four-wheel drive dark-colored pickup truck at 1.21 a.m. on August 2nd. So that is also most likely fact. It's also fact that the family packed only enough for about a two-week stay away from home and left most of their other belongings behind. So it is believed that the whole family expected to return. And the reason I bring this fact or not fact stuff up is that this is the way the story is reported time and time again. But there are so many things that we can't possibly know. Like, did Ronnie start the conversation saying that he was out of work and the guy offered him the job and just offered Doreen and the kids jobs or daycare to overcome his objections? Or did he mention his wife first and the job was offered to her and that he could come too? So we don't actually know who the actual target was as far as offering this out-of-town job. We also don't know if this was the actual job that he offered. He told his family it was, but bucking logs seems like kind of back-breaking work for somebody with a back injury already. I have no idea if Ronnie was the kind of guy that would lie about something like that. It doesn't sound like it, but I wasn't there and I didn't know him. My opinion of Maureen's take is that she believes it. So it is likely, but the job could have been something much less backbreaking, but much more sketchy with an offer of a lot of money. Desperate times can make you a bit less ethical. So I think we can all agree that he was offered work and that it was clear that the family was invited. Ronnie kept in pretty consistent contact with his family, especially his mom. So when she hadn't heard from him by Friday, August 25th, she called the RCMP to report the family missing. Now, apparently, at first, they didn't feel anything sinister was afoot. Maybe they just decided to stay longer. Maybe they voluntarily left. And it's 1989 in a country with a very bad reputation for its treatment of missing Indigenous people. So at first, it was mostly Mabel raising money at Bingo to be able to travel to Prince George and put up missing posters. But at some point, RCMP did try and track down a logging camp in the Chilcots Lake area, of which there were some but none with an on-site daycare, of course, and none that allowed whole families on site. Now, you and I are probably fairly wise to the fact that no logging camp would ever allow children on site, especially in 1989, and there were no daycares at pretty much any workplace back then. But to a guy needing money, this offer probably sounded pretty darn sweet. But regardless, police are pretty sure no such camp existed. In February 1990, a $2,000 reward was offered and tips came in, but no trace of the family was found. Now, this is kind of interesting. Maureen told Eve Lazaros of Cold Case Canada that she was specifically told by the RCMP that if she went to the media about her sister's case, they would not share any details of their investigation with her. 
Now, of course, she continued to contact them and did go to the media, but here's where my coverage probably differs from some others on this case, or really any cold case for that matter. Active investigations, which cold cases are still active investigations because they have not been solved, are always, always, always held close to the investigator's chest. They release nothing unless they are sure that what they are releasing will not in any way impede the investigation, and specific details are always held back, so if they ever do get a suspect, they are armed with information that only the killer would know. So it surprises me that they would say something like that. Well, kind of. RCMP and Indigenous peoples have never really had a great amicable relationship, but it doesn't surprise me that they didn't share very much with Maureen about any details that they had uncovered. Anyways, in 1992, Crime Stoppers ran a reenactment about the case that ran for a solid six months, but they still didn't get any meaningful leads on their whereabouts. Then, on Sunday, January 28, 1996, a call came in to the Vanderhoof police station. Vanderhoof is a small town of about 4,500 people east of Prince George. The call itself was only about 10 seconds long and very muffled with a lot of background noise, so it was really hard to make out, but what they caught was... Quote, the Jack family are buried in the south end of something ranch, end quote. They couldn't make out what ranch it was, but the University of BC was able to clean up the audio a bit and trace the call to a residence in Stony Creek, which I believe now has been renamed as Lake Town, which is a short distance from Vanderhoof. And when the police went to the house, they discovered that at the, at the time the call had come in, there had been a house party going on, which is why it was so noisy in the background. They tracked down most of the party people, but they couldn't identify the caller. Investigators published several appeals in local newspapers asking the person to call again and that they planned to release the recording of the, the caller's voice if they didn't do that. But still nothing. To the best of the investigators could make out, they thought the caller might have said Gordy's Ranch, which is an actual place, not a logging camp, but a ranch, but still no luck in finding any trace of the family. Another interesting fact about this call is that it turns out that on that night of the call, about 45 minutes after it had come in, police were dispatched for a noise complaint at that very house. But they, of course, were unaware of any potential connection to the Jack case, so they didn't have an opportunity to look for themselves for a very tall bearded man. The case was revamped again in 1999 when the Serious Crimes Unit from Vancouver was brought in to try and get some traction on the case but still no luck, at least no luck that was released to the public. Over the next several years, Maureen started a Facebook page called Missing Jack Family to try and get some tips, and she was also sadly told that her family's case doesn't fit the Highway of Tears criteria, so it isn't under investigation by the Highway of Tears Task Force, a task force that has faced numerous budget cuts since 2014, which completely negates the recommendations and demands made in the 2011 Murdered Missing Indigenous Women and Girls Inquiry. But that's another story. But the task force is investigating missing women and girls and not whole families. But what has been happening is some stuff. And please can't talk about it being that it's still in the investigation stage. But since 1989, the police and RCMP have actually done hundreds of interviews and searched dozens of properties looking for the Jack family. In fact, the last best estimate is that there is currently in storage 60 bankers' boxes of documents relating to this investigation. In an interview with Cold Case Canada, Sergeant Aaron Whitehouse of, serious, of the Serious Crimes Unit says that the Jack family is the largest paper file on record and the only one of its kind in Canada. 
He also says that the case is and has been investigated as a homicide. They've had suspects over the years, but nothing substantial. Then, on the 30th anniversary of the family's disappearance, the police kind of renew the case and look to the public, hoping that a tipster, who is likely not the same one from the phone call in 1996, passed on some information that led them to the, I'm going to butcher this name, Seikut's First Nation Reserve, which is located on the east end of Nulke Lake, which is about 14 kilometers south of Vanderhoof, and rather close to Stony Creek, where that original call came in. Between August 28th and the 30th of 2019, the reserve land was searched by the Serious Crimes Unit using civilian experts with ground-penetrating radar and heavy digging equipment, very similar to how they are uncovering the residential school unmarked graves. But again, no trace was found. But what is interesting about the Sequitz Reserve is that the two largest employers of the reserve is the band government and the forestry and logging industry. Now, there is no way that the bearded man is Indigenous, so not a member of the reserve, but perhaps connected with reserves in the area as an employer, which is interesting to think about. Apparently, Maureen was told about the tip, but not what it was, just that it was significant, and she was told that, okay, now we've looked, so drop it. However, Sergeant Aaron Whitehouse says that he is very invested in finding Ronnie, Doreen, Russell, and Ryan. In 2020, the RCMP released computer-age photos and put up a billboard on Highway 97, which is just before Highway 16. What I find interesting about that is that if they are investigating this as a homicide under the presumed assumption that they're dead, why would they computer-age them? Because that kind of assumes that there's a chance of finding them alive. At this point, Maureen doesn't really believe that the family's alive anymore, but she's hopeful. And at this point, she just wants answers as to what happened to her family as we all do. And that brings me to the theories and the kind of very reason I don't do very much unsolved cases. I am not an investigator. I wouldn't consider myself an armchair detective. I'm really just a storyteller. Police and forensics do the real work and then journalists come in and do some more work. And all I really do is go through all the information that I can get my hands on and try to put together the story in a chronological order in a way that hopefully highlights the loss for the family and keeps the person's legacy alive by telling their story of who they were and what happened to them, who did it, maybe the why, and try to identify the red flags so something similar doesn't happen to you. I normally don't do theories. That is for the investigators that have access to a lot more information than I do, and I only bring you cases that have been tested in court. I'm not here to throw out suspects or presume anyone's guilt. But having said that, in this case, we have a few theories brought forward by those armchair detectives, but I don't think they are very good theories, and I think that they would be best to leave the detective work to detectives and not spreading rumors on Reddit, but that's just my opinion. The first theory is a man named Richard Beasley. Richard was convicted of the murder of three men with luring them with job offers to work as a caretaker on a farm. He would get them out onto this remote remote location and then shoot them. This guy looks really good for it because he it's a very similar MO. Uh, he would have been about 30 in 1989 and really closely matches the description of the bearded man. But he lives in Iowa and there's no record of him ever living in Canada. And the bearded man was familiar with the area and the work that was involved in logging. He also didn't ever kill whole families, just single guys that were down on their luck. 
The next, we have the theory of Bobby Jack Fowler, who's a serial killer that targeted the Highway of Tears area. He was only convicted on one mur- of one murder, but he was a suspect in about 16. I'm not really going to go into much detail on him because he just doesn't match the description. He always worked alone and he targeted young women. He's also dead now. He died in 2006. There's also a theory that the job was real and that they got screwed out of money that they were owed. And when they confronted the bearded man, he killed them. Um, And that would be a good theory if such a camp was ever found to have actually existed. Um, I did kind of wonder, now this is my own kind of wondering, if somehow the rape of Doreen that she suffered when she was 17 could somehow be connected in some way that maybe this bearded man was paid to take out the family to avoid child support or something. But from what I can piece together about Doreen, she was a woman that had suffered trauma after trauma and was just kind of not used to it, but resigned to it. So I doubt that she was making a lot of waves about it at that point. However, Maureen is a very outspoken woman about her sister's case and the missing murdered Indigenous women and girls, uh, rightfully so, and go Maureen. But maybe Doreen was the same, very outspoken and was searching for justice. But that's just an idea I had, not really a theory. So here is my theory for what it's worth. And I don't think you can even call it a theory. I guess it's more of what I think about the case. We know next to nothing about the conversation that Ronnie actually had with the bearded man. So we can't know who the target was. Was it Ronnie, Doreen or the kids? But it's clear that the suspect knew the area, at least enough to know that there were logging camps in that Chilcots Lake area. He also knew enough about Ronnie that he was out of work, that he had a wife and two kids. We know that Ronnie and the family expected to be back. And if Ronnie was going to peace out on his family or commit a murder-suicide, he likely wouldn't have involved a bearded man. And a bearded man was definitely involved. I think that this guy worked in the logging industry and targeted Indigenous men who were looking for work. I think the invitation of the family was just a way to get this guy lured to a remote location. The guy was definitely a good con man and he knew how to overcome all any of his objections and worries. The bar was known to be a rather seedy bar, so although no one there admitted to the guy being a regular, snitches get stitches, so they might just have kept quiet about it. The other thing we don't know is much about Ronnie himself. Like, did he make enemies in the area? It doesn't sound like it, but who really knows other than the bearded man and Ronnie? Maureen did allude to some physical violence between him and Doreen at times. My theory is that they were intentionally targeted for a specific reason, and we'll probably never know what that reason is, and killed that same night in a remote area. I think that the bodies were likely burned and any remains were scattered around likely never to be found. But what I do know is that somewhere in those 60 boxes of files that the police have is probably the answer. But without bodies and with almost 35 years behind them, I don't think that they could put together a case tight enough to get an arrest, let alone a conviction. And without a conviction, in Canada, you're never going to learn the answers because it will remain open and close to the RCMP's chest as one of Canada's most unusual unsolved cases. And that was the disappearance of the Jack family. It's ironic, I thought when I was re- when I started to research this, that I wasn't going to have enough for a full episode. But look at that, I did. I'm going to be back again next week with a solved case that I will not be investigating, but just telling. Do your rate, review, subscribe thing. Click on the link before, below if you want some exclusive content. And as always, thank you so much for listening.